Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Anniversary of the beginning of what we now call the Reformation. And we just thought it would be appropriate to take a few weeks and look at this whole uh, incredible event in human history. We want to do a few messages that celebrate and remember this momentous time in history. Now, I'm, I'm very aware that as soon as you mention the word history, for some it creates profound anxiety and, um, you know, the, the thoughts back to sixth form or whatever it is, history, um, you know, just like, ah, I hate history, who cares? What does this have to do with me? Well, actually, reflection is a major way of learning. It was Winston Churchill who used to say he was a student of history because the further back you can look, the further forward you can see. The reality is that this particular season in history had an earthquake-like impact on, on the course of history. It was a perfect 10 on the Richter scale, as it were. Uh, it left an enormous and lasting legacy in the history of the world, not just the, the church. Um, I suspect that some of you will have at least heard of the word Reformation, know, you know that something called the Reformation happened, but perhaps many would not know much more about it than its name. You may also have heard of some of the people at the center of the Reformation uh, without, again, being able to say much more about them. People like Martin Luther, John Calvin, Ulrich Zingwill, uh, John Knox. These were, these were fascinating characters that literally shaped the world and, of course, the church with their ministries and their ideas. So what I plan to do in this first message this morning is kind of give you a little bit of a historical introduction to the Reformation. So this morning we're probably looking more at history than we are at the Scriptures, but we will come to the Scriptures in the course of this series. And in this message, I want to focus really mostly uh, on the man who was the catalyst of the Reformation, <clears throat> excuse me, a man by the name of Martin Luther. Um, in the following messages in the series, and there's probably going to be five in all, um, we will look briefly at what we call the five solas of the Reformation. And I'll explain these as we go, but sola scriptura, which literally means God's word alone. Sola fide, which is by faith alone. Sola gratia, which is God's grace alone. Sola Christus, which is by Christ alone. And the fifth one is Sola de Glorio, which is for God's glory alone. These were the five great thrusts of this season that we call the Reformation. And in one of the other messages, we're going to be looking at the legacy of the Reformation, both in its positive and negative impacts. Now, <clears throat> the essence of this season, the Reformation, was that it gave fresh answers to four major questions, answers which were quite different from the ones that the medieval church of the time were giving to those questions. Now, the four questions and the fresh answers that turned the world upside down through the Reformation, the, fir the first question was, how is a person saved? 
How is a person brought into relationship with God? Now, the traditional response of the church at that time was that you were basically born into the community of faith, that you were baptized as an infant, and that as you grew, you partook of the sacraments, you lived a good life with good works that indicated that, in fact, you were part of this community of faith, and therefore, hopefully, in good standing with God. Now, the reformers came along and spoke to that question, and they burst onto the scene with the news that you could be in a right relationship with God by faith alone. That was sola fide. Through Christ alone. That was sola Christus. And that the good works element flowed from and did not cause that relationship. Now, the second major question of the Reformation was, where did ultimate religious authority lie? And the church of that time said that it lay with the scriptures as they were interpreted by the church and equally balanced with the traditions of the church. The reformers came along and said that authority lay not with the institutional church or its interpretation of the scriptures or its traditions, but in the scriptures alone. The third great question was, what is the church? And the medieval church of the time was made up in, of a hierarchical structure with, of course, the pope at the top and then the cardinals, the bishops, the priests, and, and the lay people. The reformers maintained that the whole community of Christian believers made up the church and that all of them were priests before God. You've probably heard the term the priesthood of believers. That came from the season, and it was one of the great cries of the Reformation. And the fourth major question is, what is the essence of Christian living? And the medieval church of the time saw monastic orders and religious life as the pinnacle of serving God, and that everything else was kind of second class after that. The reformers came and taught that serving God in any useful calling, whether religious or secular, was valid and pleasing to God. So four great questions, four answers from the Reformation that were very, very different from the traditional approach of the church at the time. Now, for many of you, you'd be thinking, well, you know, ho-hum to those answers. I mean, who didn't know those things? What's so earth-shaking about those answers? Doesn't everybody know those things? Well, at the time, they were, in fact, earth-shaking in their difference and freshness. And people actually fought and died over the answers for, of those, to those questions. The fact that they are somewhat ho-hum to you simply serves to show you the impact and the pervasiveness of the Reformation on our modern-day thinking. We don't, we don't skip a heartbeat over the answers to those questions. In those days, they were massive. Now, whenever you try and interpret history or step into history to try and interpret it, you're always breaking into a link of a longer chain. And because you don't reference the things that have come before where you step in, you tend to imagine that perhaps not much has. But while we step into the life of Martin Luther, there was a lot of things that had happened prior to him. There had been a number of pre-Reformation renewal movements that had influenced the church at that time. The Waldensians, 
men like John Whitcliffe and John Huss, both of whom, by the way, paid with their lives for the truths that they brought and for largely interpreting the scriptures in a language that people could understand. There desperately needed to be reform in the church, as there always does, in fact. At this time, the medieval church had become somewhat bogged down in tradition and superstition. Some of its practices were mixed with paganism, and its leadership had become wealthy, uh, overly political, and in many cases, corrupt. There was at the time the practice of the veneration of the saints, widespread veneration of saints and the superstition of, uh, around the miracles that they supposedly worked through their bones, through their tombs and other relics. And many of these things were basically accepted without much in the way of question. And it seemed that the message of the gospel had largely become lost in the barnacle-like encrustations of the traditions that had developed. Added to that, economic and social conditions of the time were also calling out for reform and change. In many parts of Europe, there was no efficient legal system, and it seemed that the nobility were simply above the law and simply functioned as they liked without fear of retribution. Positions inside and outside the church were bought and sold, and by and large, people were deeply dissatisfied with the status quo. And it was into this tinder-dry landscape that came the forest fire spark that was Martin Luther. He was born in 1483, the son of a copper miner in Saxony in Germany. By the way, he was a contemporary of men like Christopher Columbus and Michelangelo. They lived at the same time Luther did. Um, Luther's father worked his way up from a miner to actually become a part-time owner of a number of copper mines, and so young Martin had a relatively comfortable upbringing as far as economic factors went. Um, his upbringing was incredibly strict. In fact, he later described it as abusive. Uh, he was regularly physically beaten by both his parents. He did show a significant intellectual promise and as a result of that promise, was sent by his parents to study law. And he earned both a bachelor and master's degree in very, very quick time from Erfurt University. Now, the story goes that one day Martin Luther was walking to law school in 1505, and he got caught in a very frightening thunderstorm. During the height of the storm, he was very nearly hit by a lightning bolt, and in fear, he cried out to St. Anne, who was the patron saint of miners. He promised that if he survived the storm, he would leave law and he would join the monastery. And as, um, as happened, he survived the storm and was true to his word. And he followed through on his vow and joined an Augustinian order of monks, much to the consternation and disappointed, disappointment of his parents. It seems that Martin Luther was very troubled by uh, um, what some would describe as an over-sensitive conscience. Uh, he realized that he did not have any assurance of peace with God. And as a result, seeking to find that, he pursued monastic life fully, engaging in all its aesthetic practices, fasting, going without sleep, enduring bone-chilling cold without blankets, prayer vigils, flagellating himself with, with, um, with, with whip, all in an effort to try and find this 
incredibly, it seemed to him at least, elusive peace with God. Uh, Not surprisingly, his health began to crack under such a regime of rigorous austerity. He He was later to say, if anybody could have earned heaven by the life of a monk, it was I. He went to confession so often, and he confessed such trivial things that his confessor, Johann von Straupus, got frustrated with him and, and on one occasion advised Luther to go out and commit some real sins. He's reputed to have said, murder your parents, commit adultery, utter blasphemy, do something worth confessing. <laughs> well, Luther... Uh, went on in his studies, took his doctorate, and went to become a professor of the Bible at Wittenberg University. For Luther, theology wasn't just an academic exercise. It was a continuation of his agonizing quest to find peace with God. Austerity and monasticism hadn't given him any answers. His hope was that perhaps an intense study of the Scriptures would. At first, not much changed. However, as he studied, a new and revolutionary picture of God began to develop in his soul. And in 1515, he was reading and studying St. Paul's letter to the Romans. As he pondered that first chapter, and particularly the 17th verse, the just shall live by faith, light began to break in on him, and he began to see that it was by means of God's grace and his sheer mercy that he justified or made right with him those who would put their faith in Christ. And Luther began to understand that salvation and peace with God could be found by grace alone, by faith alone, by Christ alone. And he said, thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn and have gone through open doors into paradise. Now, the immediate problem for Luther was that this discovery at the time clashed with his church's doctrines. The the medieval church taught and believed that people were justified or made right with God through a combination of, of faith, of course, but good works, virtuous acts, accepting the church dogma and participation in the church rituals and sacraments. Now, initially, Luther didn't see his discovery as particularly revolutionary. He had read the early church fathers, and it seemed to him that they didn't say anything different than he had just uh, stumbled upon. So he didn't see any need to reject the church. However, it became clear relatively quickly that this teaching did, in fact, undermine the whole structure of the church's doctrines and and their teachings. If salvation was by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, then the mediation of the priests and the popes and the veneration of the saints and a host of other things could be pushed aside weren't needed, and ultimately, of course, would then crumble into insignificance. If authority, as Luther was logically to go on and declare, lay in the Scriptures alone, then church tradition and even the popes themselves were subject to it and not vice versa. And this, to borrow a phrase that was used to describe the teaching of Karl Barth, was tantamount to a bomb in the theological playground. The the catalyst, actually, that propelled Luther's teaching to the foreground 
occurred because of something he considered to be a flagrant abuse of the church's authorities and it related, authority, and it related to finances. And it concerned the sale of what was then called indulgences. Now, indulgences were, were pardons, and they were pardons given to people to release them or to shorten the time that they would spend in what the church then taught was purgatory. The Catholic Church taught then and now that there are actually three spheres, if you like, in terms of where people uh, go once judgment has been um, has been exercised. So there is hell, there is purgatory, there is heaven. And the majority of people go to purgatory where for a season they suffer and work off some of the punishment for their sins. So these indulgences were pardons and they were given to people who contributed to papal income. Uh, and to church projects. And what they were told was that if you put money into this project, then we can give you an indulgence that will either shorten your time in purgatory or you can use it to shorten a loved one's time in purgatory. This all came to a head, by the way, in 1517 when a Dominican monk by the name of John Tetzel uh, came preaching throughout Germany on behalf of a papal fundraising campaign. They were seeking to raise money to complete St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, and, and Tetzel uh, composed a little jingle, a little ditty that would help him raise the funds, and he said, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Well, Luther was outraged at what he saw as a betrayal of the gospel message and an abuse of the Pope's authority, and he challenged the practice. And October the 31st, 1517, nearly 500 years ago, he nailed his famous 95 propositions or theses on the castle church door at Wittenberg. It was entitled Disputation on the Power and Efficacy of Indulgences, and it was a list of questions and propositions for debate. Now, the act itself wasn't offensive. That was the customary way of announcing that a debate was needed. And at this point, Luther intended not much more than that. He just wanted to talk about it. He wanted to debate it. However, the problem or the situation rapidly escalated and that act became the spark that lit the forest fire that it was to became, become known as the Reformation. Instead of the reasoned debate that Luther had hoped for, his propositions stirred hatred and suspicion in the leadership of the church. He was accused of preaching dangerous doctrine, and the Vatican issued a series of counter-theses, essentially stating that anyone arguing against or criticizing the indulgences were heretics. Luther held an 18-day debate. 18-day debate. That doesn't register in our day of 30-second sound bites, does it? But he held an 18-day debate with a Catholic theologian named John Eck at Leipzig. He was accused of heresy, and he demanded scriptural proof that he was wrong. At one point in the debate saying, a council may sometimes err. Neither the church nor the pope can establish articles of faith. These must come from the scriptures. So Luther had moved from his first convictions of by faith alone, by grace alone, by Christ alone, to this next sola, sola scriptura, by the scriptures alone. 
the scriptures, he claimed, and not popes or councils, were the final standard, the ultimate authority of Christian faith and behavior. Now, the response of the church was rapid and final. A papal bull was, um, not, not the bull, you know, a, a bull, never mind, um, was issued by the Pope Leo X. He was excommunicated in June of 1520. When he received this papal bull, the um, piece of paper, he burned it publicly at Wittenberg and the, and the, the sides were drawn up. That act propelled Luther to the front and center of widespread public dissatisfaction with the church. Um, the advent of the, pr the printing press, which, which was around that time, meant that Luther's ideas were disseminated rapidly throughout Germany and then on out through Europe in general. Buoyed by the support that he received and deepened by his convictions in studying the scriptures, he became much more publicly aggressive in his criticisms of the church. He attacked the papacy for depriving Christians of the freedom of approaching God directly by faith without the need for the mediation of the church's officers. He set forth a new view on the sacraments. There were seven at the time. Luther basically reduced those seven to two baptism in the Eucharist. He set aside the traditional view of the church as sacred hierarchy headed by the Pope and returned to what he understood to be the early Christian view of the church as a community of believers in which all were considered priests and all were to offer spiritual sacrifices. He attacked the necessity of monasticism by stressing that the essence of Christians, Christian living lay in seeing God in one's calling, whether secular or ecclesiastical. All useful callings, he claimed, were equally sacred in God's eyes. Now, this revolt against Rome spread like wildfire. And, and to be fair, it wasn't always theologically motivated. There was a crass nationalism. There was personal ambition, especially among the princes and dukes and the people who held office. They saw this movement as a way of gaining freedom for Rome and, and, and advancing their own personal ambitions. The split between Rome and this fledgling new movement became unbridgeable and irretrievable. <clears throat> it was clear that another church movement was starting. And Luther, exhorted by his followers, started a whole new movement of churches. He abolished bishops. He established local pastors over local congregations. He abandoned celibacy as a prerequisite for ministry. Monks and nuns that had joined Luther's crusade, as it were, were released from monastic orders and encouraged to marry. And Luther himself married an ex-nun, Katharina von Bora. Uh, he amusingly commented about his change of status. He said there's a lot to get used to in the first year of marriage. One wakes in the morning and finds a pair of pigtails on the pillow that were not there before. He removed the Latin liturgy, and he replaced it with German so that all of the people in the church could understand what was being said and done. He amazingly produced a Bible in the German language. He changed the sacrifice of the Mass to a service characterized by congregational singing, by the preaching of the Word, and, of course, the Eucharist. Luther was an incredibly gifted man. He wrote numerous hymns, and they had such an effect in terms of conveying the doctrine 
that one Catholic bishop complained that Luther had damned more souls as a result of his songs than he had of his, by his preaching. What Luther did, and you know, this is so up to date, you know, and, and we, we talk every you know, generation about worship wars and, and what kind of songs we should sing. And, and I, I, this is not new. This went right back to this age because what, what uh, Luther did was he took the German drinking songs of the time, the popular songs of the time, and put words to them. So a mighty fortress is our God. You know, I mean, we, we in our generation think, you know, those are the hymns. We should be singing hymns like that, not these modern-day ditties. Well, A Mighty Fortress is Our God was a German drinking song. A mighty fortress is our God. <laughs> and it caused outrage at the time, of course. Um, Luther was quite fond of his beer, actually. Um, never got drunk, but enjoyed his, enjoyed his beer. Um, he, was, he was a titanic figure. Uh, he left an incredible mark on the history, not just of the church, but of the world. He endured painful years of controversy as he fashioned this new movement. He was forced to defend the bedrock of his understanding of faith and grace against all comers. And to be truthful, in the process, he was far from perfect. Uh, he fought bitterly with not just the Church of Rome, but with his fellow reformers. Uh, in some of his writings, he expressed profoundly anti-Semitic views that um, puzzle and embarrass Christians who otherwise admire him. Tragically, many of those um, sayings, uh, his particular book, Against the Jews and Their Lies, was picked up by the Lutheran Church in the Nazi era. And, um, and, and became an instrument in terms of heading that nation down the road of their final solution. So he, he was far from perfect. It's been noted that we learn from titans even when their flaws are titanic. There were probably two other giants in terms of at least the European Reformation that I'd like to mention just very, very briefly. One was Ulrich Zwingli and the other was John Calvin. Uh, Zwingli was from Zurich in Switzerland. Um, he gained a very large following a, in Switzerland, as Luther had done in Germany, and the city swung behind Zwingli's um, reformed views. He was supported by the city council, and he radically reformed the church in the city. Masses were removed, icons were abolished. He reconfigured the monasteries in much the same way Luther had done. His influence and the changes that that influence wrought extended to numerous other cities. Uh, Bern, Basel, Schaffhausen, all of these cities became reformed in, th in their theology and in the direction of church life. The third great figure was Calvin, John Calvin. Now, Calvin was 26 years younger than Martin Luther, so effectively he grew up in a world where the Reformation was already an established reality. So in some ways, he was in fact a second generation reformer. He became probably most famous for his work in the Swiss city of Geneva, and um, because of his writings, he probably was the one that has left the most lasting and influential legacy out of the reformers. His most famous work is called Institutes of the Christian Religion. 
Now, today, if it is read at all, it's only read pretty much by theologians, but in that day, it was that day's alpha. It was Christianity 101, and if you happen to have read that, you'll realize that um, the whole idea of us getting smarter and smarter actually doesn't hold a lot of water. These guys were into something that was seriously theological, and it was meant for people of all kinds, not just theologians. If Luther's ultimate text was the just shall live by faith, then Calvin's would have to be thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he's probably most remembered for his views on God's sovereignty, God's eternal sovereign decrees. Uh, and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago in the last message of it ain't necessarily so. But Luther believed that God in his eternal decrees has determined every single thing that happens and all that happens on earth has happened because God has decreed it eternally. Now the implications of that are, are deep and profound and in many instances, instances incredibly troubling because those who go to heaven go there because of God's eternal decree. Those who go to hell go there because God has eternally decreed it before time was. And uh, that, that, that has proved to be incredibly polarizing down through the life of the church. So Luther is both adored and abhorred at the same time. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, once said, the longer I live, the clearer it does appear to me that John Calvin's system is the nearest to perfection. So you get the Reformed scholars, you know, the Carsons, the Pipers, the Kellers, who... They, they take Calvin's situation or system and, and uh, believe that to be, as Spurgeon said, the nearest to perfection. Will Durant, on the other hand, said, but we shall always find it hard to love the man, Calvin, who darkened the human soul with the most absurd and blasphemous conception of God in all of history. You can't get two wider you know, opinions, more, more differing opinions. Um, for what it's worth, and it might not be worth a whole lot, uh, I think over the years, uh, it's fairly clear where I would stand on that. And as I said in the last series that I preached, it ain't necessarily so. Um, probably would make it reasonably plain that I am much closer to Durant's view of Calvin's view of sovereignty than, than Spurgeon's. However, these were days when giants walked the earth. These men were, with all of their faults, incredible men. They loved God, they loved the people of God, and they dramatically altered the, the way we think in the West. Remember um, Rick Watts being here talking about progress and, and uh, you know, innovation and design and the things that the Christian gospel has left as a legacy to the West. Well, these men left a phenomenal legacy in terms of the way they lived their lives and the way they thought to us as, as, as Westerners. They and the Reformation that flowed from their teaching dramatically shaped the Protestant movement uh, of, of the church, of course, of which we are part. And it was more than simply an alteration of liturgical or ceremonial practice. It was a new way of looking at the world which impacted every parish and impacted the daily life of every parishioner. They produced a change in thought, in life, in what it meant to be a human being in God's world. 
It was a world, they said, in which we could have confidence in God and a certain hope for the future based on God's grace to us in Christ revealed to us through the scriptures which we could access by faith alone. Sola Scriptura, by the scriptures alone, by grace alone, by faith alone, by Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. That was the legacy of the Reformation. And over the next couple of weeks, we want to unpack this a little and remind ourselves of how precious those truths are. So I'm going to ask if the team would come and I'm going to invite you to stand. And we're going to just spend a little bit of time ministering to God our spiritual sacrifices. We believe that every single person who's been born again by faith through grace, through the work of Christ, is a priest. And that we are exhorted, as Peter said, to bring spiritual sacrifices, the giving of thanks, the singing forth of praise, the presentation of our lives. Worship isn't just something that we do that makes us feel a little better. It's about something we do because we are priests. We come and we bring our sacrifices. They aren't so much about us. They come through us to honor and bless God. And so I'm going to invite you to stand and let's finish this morning as we bring spiritual sacrifices before the Lord. Father, help us by your grace, empowered by your spirit, to love in the same way that you did, to sacrifice in the same way that you did, to surrender in the same way that you did, because you have done all of these things. Father, our commitment is that so will I. Help us, we pray. We thank you for the faithfulness that you have showed to us day by day, every day, Father. Every morning, your mercies are new. Great is your faithfulness. And as we go from this place, we thank you that we can walk out with an assurance of right standing with you, not because of the quality of our lives, but because of the quality of Jesus's. Thank you for that. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Father, we ask that you'd release us with that sense of thanksgiving and, and, and blessing and that we would be agents to spread that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.